0: This is Law for Community Workers On The Go. My name is Jessica Sullivan and I work in the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales. Today I will be speaking to Nicola Cannon, a Senior Solicitor in the Civil Law Division specialising in Social Security. There is a lot to cover in this episode and we have made the information clear and easy to understand. We have included a few timestamps in the episode notes below so you can skip ahead to those sections most relevant to you and your clients if you would like to access any of the information spoken about in the episode please see the links in the show notes below before we begin we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on aboriginal land and pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any indigenous people who may be listening today We initially started recording this podcast on the 25th of March, 2020. Since that date, there have been further announcements and changes made to Centrelink services. So today is the 27th of March, 2020, and we will talk you through a summary of all the changes that have been happening over this last week. We will then discuss the arrangements currently in place for people already receiving a Centrelink payment and the arrangements for those who are now looking to apply for Centrelink payments. Uh, Welcome, Nicola. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Hi, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. I guess let's just jump straight in. Absolutely. Um, What I might just say up front, though, is that we know that this is a pretty fluid situation and changes are happening on an almost daily basis, including changes to do with Centrelink payments and requirements. Um, So the best, most up-to-date source of information continues to be the Centrelink website, which reflects all of these changes. They do have a dedicated COVID-19 page on their website, and we will link to that um, in the material that goes out with the podcast. If you're helping clients or speaking with clients who are affected by these measures, I think it's really important to take a look at the Centrelink website when you're speaking with them, just to check that you have the most up-to-date information. So there have been a number of changes announced by the government in the past week or so in relation to special measures that have been put in place for uh, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic that we're experiencing. Um, A lot of those changes are intended to make it sort of quicker and easier for people who have found themselves out of work as a result of the coronavirus. Some of the changes have taken immediate effect um, and so have been in place from the 25th of March. There are other changes or one in particular that isn't coming until the 27th of April. So I might just cover off the 27th of April first because for many people that is the big ticket item. It is the announcement of the coronavirus supplement payment, which is a $550 a fortnight supplement on top of a person's usual payment, um, which is going to go for, Six-month period. The coronavirus supplement um, will be paid to anyone who's receiving an eligible Centrelink payment. When those changes come into effect on the 27th of April, eligible Centrelink payment. There's a series of different payments that it can include. So it includes Job Seeker Payment, Youth Allowance, Job Seeker Youth Allowance, Student odd Study, Ab Study, Parenting Payment. Farm household allowance and special benefits. So anyone who is on those payments at the twenty seventh of April, twenty twenty, is going to start to see an extra five hundred and fifty dollars a fortnight coming in to their account with their usual payment. An important message about that is that clients don't need to apply for that extra supplement. So if they're on the eligible payment at that date, they will be um, the beneficiary of that extra supplement. Another thing that's probably important to point out about it is that if a person is on a part payment of one of those payments they will still be entitled to the full $550 a fortnight supplement so that means if for example a person is getting part job seeker payment because they're also working a few hours or maybe because their partner earns some income as well that reduces their payment down even if their normal payment is reduced all the way down to one dollar they will still because they are on a part payment get the full $550 a fortnight in the supplement
0: So I might just get you to give us a rundown of the other changes that have already been made by the government earlier this week.
1: Yes, there are other changes that have been announced by the government this week that took effect on the 25th of March. So people will benefit from some of those changes immediately. Those changes include things like the fact that there is going to be no assets testing for JobSeeker Payment youth allowance, job seeker or parenting payment during this coronavirus period. So that's going to increase the number of people who are able to get onto payment. Another change that's really going to assist a broader range of people to be eligible for Centrelink payments is that from the 25th of March, the government has actually waived the newly arrived residents waiting period for anyone who is serving those waiting periods and seeking to access a payment. So that's mm-hmm. going to mean that a number of permanent residents, visa holders who were not otherwise able to access Centrelink payments because they were still in that newly arrived residence waiting period are going to be able to immediately access those payments. Some other reductions in waiting periods have also been announced that are going to benefit um, some of our clients. So the ordinary waiting period to get onto Seeker payment is something that has already been waived, but also from the 25th of March, the liquid assets waiting period has been waived. And so that's really important because it means people aren't necessarily going to have to completely sort of run down their savings before they're able to access things like Job Seeker payment. And there's also been a waiver of the seasonal work preclusion period that, that's going to affect some seasonal workers in a positive way. The last thing is that as of Wednesday this week, the 25th of March, the government has actually introduced a number of measures to make it easier and more streamlined for people to access Centrelink payments. So one of the key things there has been the temporary removal of the requirement to provide some of the additional documents that people ordinarily would have had to provide before they can access Centrelink payments. So that includes things like employment separation certificates, proof of rental arrangements, and verification of relationship status. So there's going to be less red tape Involved in people being able to access Centrelink payments and the the key message that we're getting from the government is that if they think they're eligible, people should register their intent to claim a payment as soon as possible and then they can go away and get whatever supplementary material they need um, and provide it in the week or two following that registration of their intent to claim and if they are eligible for the payment they will be back paid that payment to the date that they actually registered their intent to claim so that's really good because it means there's less documentation required but also people are going to be paid from the date that they initially make contact with Centrelink.
0: Great that's really good to know thank you. So I've heard things mentioned in the media about another one-off payment that people will be getting from Centrelink. Can you tell us a bit more about that one, please, Nicola?
1: So there have been a lot of changes over the past couple of weeks. One of the biggest ones there that um, people will be interested in is the announcement of the $750 one-off economic support payments. So there'll be two one-off payments available for people who were living in Australia on the 12th of March and receiving a Centrelink payment at that time. Um, So there's a two separate $750 one-off lump sums. Uh, The first of those payments is likely to start being paid on the 31st of March. And most people are going to actually see it in their accounts in around sort of mid to late April. And then the second payment is going to be processed on the 13th of July. Just as we
0: were about to release this episode, we found out that the government has now extended the cutoff date for eligibility for economic support payments by a month from the 12th of March 2020 to the 13th of April 2020. We understand that the first payments will start to be processed around the 31st of March 2020 and people will start to see those payments in their accounts in mid-April but now anyone who successfully applies for a payment before 13 April 2020 will also be eligible for those economic support payments.
1: Similarly with the coronavirus supplement people don't need to make an application for that payment, it will just be processed automatically for them.
0: Great. And similar to the coronavirus supplement, does that count for people who are on part payments as well? It will,
1: yes. yeah. Okay. So, as long as they're getting some, um, some amount of Centrelink payment and they were in Australia on the 12th of March, uh, they will be eligible for two lump sum payments, yeah. So, w- what
0: if you weren't living in Australia on the 12th of March?
1: Unfortunately, if you weren't living in Australia, that is the key date. And unfortunately, if you weren't living in Australia on that date, then you won't be eligible for those payments. But if you're back in the country now, you might still be eligible for, you know, Centrelink payments more broadly, and some of these other measures that have been introduced might benefit you.
0: Okay, great. So these benefits so the coronavirus supplement and the economic support payment, these $750 payments, these are for people who are already or who were already receiving some form of Centrelink payment. Will either of these payments be made available for people? I mean, it's a different topic and we're going to move to talk about that next, but will these payments be made for people who are only going on to Centrelink now?
1: It's a really good question, Jess. And for the $750, what they're calling the economic support payments, those are only going to be available to people who were on Centrelink payments at the 12th of March and living in Australia at that time. So unfortunately, that's not going to benefit anyone who's potentially recently lost their job as a result of the increased social distancing measures um, and is having to apply for Centrelink payments now. However, people who find themselves in that situation will benefit from the other measure that we talked about previously, which is that um, coronavirus supplement, which is the $550 a fortnight for the next six months. Okay, let's move on then,
0: Nicola, to talk about the two different groups of people that we have at the moment, which is people who are already on Centrelink or receiving some form of benefit from Centrelink and those people who are not already receiving any benefit and who may be looking to um, get onto Centrelink in some way now because they may have lost their job or some other reason. So, let's start with those who are already receiving a payment. What is the situation for them at the moment?
1: So for people who are already receiving a Centrelink payment, depending on the type of sort of category of person they are and the type of payment they're receiving, there have already been a number of sort of coronavirus related measures introduced. Um, And so we might just run through some of the different categories of people and cover off what those changes are and how they apply to them. I thought we might start with people who are on JobSeeker. JobSeeker payment, I should just mention here, is the new name for a couple of other payments that have been merged together, so people who were previously receiving Newstart Allowance and or sickness allowance or widow pension, those people are now have been transitioned across as of the twentieth of March onto a payment which is now known as Job Seeker Payment. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about Job Seeker Payment. So for people who are currently um, receiving Job Seeker Payment, there are a few relevant announcements that have come out for them in relation to the mutual obligation activities they have to do as part of receiving that payment. So that's the sort of job seeking, looking for work type activities that people are often required to do in conjunction with an external job network provider or disability employment service provider. As of this morning, there was an announcement, uh, a press release that mutual obligation requirements for job seekers have been temporarily suspended until the 31st of March 2020, which is until next week. The reason for that temporary suspension is just because of the demands that have been placed on the... Centrelink, MyGov website and and portal, people are finding it really difficult to actually report their um, compliance with those activities. So there is a temporary suspension in place. This week, people will not be penalised if they're not able to comply with their activities or report compliance with their activities. But I just want to stress that at the moment, that is only a very temporary measure that's in place. The message beyond that time at the moment is that people are still required to comply with their mutual obligation requirements for job seeker payment, but the, those requirements have been relaxed a little bit. So for people who are required to do job search activities, um, whereas they previously have been required to search for a maximum of 20 applications per month, that's now been reduced to job search requirements of four um, new applications per month. So there's a relaxation that's happened there. Also, people are being encouraged to communicate with their job active providers or disability employment service providers and negotiate doing some of their activities online. So um, where possible, doing online appointments with their providers and negotiating changes to the requirements that they're they're doing for their employment pathway plan to take into account the social distancing measures that have been introduced. If there are people who are on JobSeeker payment who are directly affected by coronavirus, so they're people who've either been told, received medical evidence that they need to self-isolate, or they're the primary carer for a child who is not able to attend school or childcare, or, or primary carer for a person with a disability whose care other. Um, other usual care arrangements have been affected, then those people can get a 14-day exemption from doing their mutual obligation requirements. There's no need at this stage to provide any medical evidence of that. It's just a matter of communicating that need with Centrelink and the people will be eligible for what's called a major personal crisis exemption just for two weeks to, to allow that crisis to pass.
0: Okay. Great. And like, as you say, and as we all know, it's a very changing time at the moment. So this is just as it stands again, as of today, the 25th of March, 2020. So these things could change. So always just remember that, that when you're listening to this, check the Centrelink website for the most up-to-date
1: advice, I guess. That's absolutely right. This mutual obligations requirements has been sort of quite a hot topic with all of these changes and I do anticipate that we may see further changes in this regard in the coming weeks that can measure it with the social distancing measures that have been put in place. So it definitely is a watch this space. The other thing that I should probably mention in connection with job seeking requirements is one of the other significant changes that has been announced this week that is of immediate effect is that there has been a suspension of any face-to-face services or group work for the Dole activities for people who are participants in the CDP program, the community development program. So the advice last week was that people were still required to attend those activities where possible unless they had a major personal crisis exemption. But the message we have this week is that those activities have been suspended which is really good, um, and that people can elect to still find other ways of engaging with their providers and undertaking activities where they can, but there is no requirement and people will not be penalised for not being able to comply with their CDP job seeking requirements at the moment so that one's really important particularly for um, a lot of Indigenous clients who are participants in those programs Mm, in rural communities.
0: Yeah good to know. So it's really good to know all of that about people who are on the JobSeeker payment, but what about other people who are receiving different types of payments, like the carer's payment? What's impacting on them, I guess?
1: Yeah, thanks Jess. There are a few different kind of groups of people that have various arrangements in place that might be worth mentioning. Um, Carers is one of them but the first one I might mention is uh, students because we know that there are universities that have had to sort of close face-to-face classes at the moment and things like that um, because of coronavirus. So for students the advice at the moment is that they will continue to get their fortnightly student payment, even if because of coronavirus, they're required to self-isolate at home or if their education provider temporarily closes the education facility or reduces their study load for a period of time. Uh, The key message for students there is that if one of those things happen, they have to let Centrelink Know about it and let Centrelink know if they are planning on um, remaining enrolled in the course and planning to return to study when it's possible for them to do so.
0: Right. Okay. And um, carers, what's happening there?
1: So with carers, it's possible that coronavirus might have impacts for people who are carrying out caring responsibilities um, and who are getting carer payment or carer allowance. But also, um, it might be the case that they're no longer able to care for the people they regularly care to because because those people are required to self-isolate the message for carers is that if they are not able to fulfill their caring responsibilities either because they themselves have to self-isolate or because the person they are caring for has to self-isolate in the first instance they should be using counting any days away as part of the 63 days respite a year that Um, they already get as part of carer payment. So it's already acknowledged with carer payment that carers will need to have a break every now and again. And so there there are nine weeks per year available to do that. Um, If the person has already used their respite this year and and is required to self-isolate, then the message is to call Centrelink on the carer's line and and they'll deal with that on a sort of case-by-case basis.
0: Okay, great. And then we've also got families and the childcare subsidies.
1: Yeah, so again, we're seeing, um, we're seeing changes happen in the childcare space because of the outbreak. And so one of the important messages for families there is if they're getting childcare subsidy and their child can't attend childcare, either because they're sick or isolated or because you as their parent or carer is sick or isolated or because you just choose to keep them away as a precaution, which we know that many parents are doing. You can still be eligible to get the childcare subsidy if your childcare service is still open and they are still charging you the fees for the time that your child is not there.
0: All right. That's good to know. And just because you did mention about getting in contact with Centrelink there, what is the recommendation that um, Centrelink is asking for at the moment? Because there's been some um, uncertainty because of the website crashing, but you know, they're also, we don't want everybody calling in if they've got a problem. So what at the moment is the advice from Centrelink about how to contact the if you need to?
1: So the advice there is that I think the first protocol is check the website to see if there's information on there that answers your question. Um, if, there, if your question isn't answered by the website, then Centrelink has actually lots of different contact points depending or, or contact phone numbers, depending on um, which section of Centrelink or what type of payment you're on. So I would recommend having a look at the website and getting the right contact number for your area. So for example, there is a a line for carers, there's a line for debt recovery, there's a line for student. Um, And I think if you call the right line for you, then um, you've got the best chance, I suppose, of getting through to the right team most quickly. In terms of things like new applications, which I think we'll talk about in a second, the message from Centrelink there is very much if you can do things online using MyGov, do it that way rather than by telephone or coming in face-to-face.
0: Because this podcast is primarily for community and health workers, can they contact Centrelink on behalf of their client?
1: That's a really good question because I suspect there are plenty of clients out there who are not necessarily going to find it easy to access Centrelink in the way that we've just described, you know, using MyGov and those sorts of services. But it is a bit tricky for caseworkers to contact on behalf of clients. One possibility is that they could, if they're able to be with the person uh, when they're calling maybe not even face to face but have them on the phone at the same time as calling Centrelink then that will allow Centrelink to take verbal authority from the actual Centrelink recipient to speak with their caseworker and normally that works okay. Um, If not, the person will actually need to have a sort of formal written authority form signed and in place for Centrelink to correspond directly with them without the actual recipient involved. Um, There are forms available for that on the website, but the easiest thing in the short term might be to try and arrange um, calling Centrelink together.
0: Okay. All right. Great. Because I can imagine that could be quite difficult, especially if you have rural and remote clients in those kinds of areas, if they don't have um, the ability to get to their client. So
1: maybe just signing one of those forms could be a way around that. So if caseworkers are needing to, you know, it's not possible to do this stuff by telephone and they do need to get assigned authority in place to contact Centrelink on behalf of one of their clients, there is a form available on the website, which is called authorizing a personal organization to inquire or act on your behalf so you so can get really that rolls thing. off the tongue there that yeah of <laughs> <It's> snappy. <laughs> a snappy title the the only thing that I would caution about that is there are some boxes that you have to tick on there about what type of nominee you would like to become when you're contacting Centrelink on behalf of somebody and there is a danger that if you tick the box which is correspondence nominee or payment nominee that you will then start to get all of your client Centrelink correspondence directly coming to you and not to them, which is obviously something that I think is not something that most caseworkers would want to happen. So that the key there is to tick the box that just says that you are a person permitted to inquire on their behalf. Don't tick all the boxes because um, you'll end up getting all of the correspondence. Okay, that is a very good
0: tip. So let's move on to those people who are not already receiving a payment. So people who may have lost their jobs or people who may have been on Centrelink back when they were a student, but they haven't been on it for years and years. What's the situation look like for them at the moment?
1: So for them, the key message that we we have at the moment is I guess try to make an application and test your eligibility. I know that that is easier said than done at the moment because there's been plenty of media around about the queues around the block at Centrelink and about website crashes and things like that, but I think those issues are going to be ironed out in the coming days. What has what the government has announced which is extremely positive is measures to make it quicker for people to apply for things like job seeker payment and to remove some of the red tape in the form of documents that are required to be provided before a person can get job seeker payment to try and make it quicker and easier for people to apply. The government has recently announced that the key thing for people is that they need to register their intent to claim a payment as soon as possible. Centrelink acknowledges that People might not be able to provide all of the supporting documents that they need for their payment on day one of the application. But as long as you log on to MyGov and register an intent to claim and then provide those documents, you know, in the week or so that follows, that claim, if it's processed and granted, will be backdated to the date of your intention to claim. So the key message is if you think you might be eligible, log on and have a go as quickly as possible, and then you can spend the next week or two getting together the rest of the documents you need if that's what it takes. Okay. So
0: if you are somebody who hasn't lost their job yet, but you're, say, having your shifts reduced or something very similar and you're thinking okay I'm not going to have a job very soon can I apply for that intent to claim now?
1: So I guess the time that you decide to claim will really depend on your individual employment situation so there are a couple of different things there one is that if you are, have lost your job but you're still effectively employed because you're getting sick leave or any other form of leave for you from your employer before you finish up then you won't be eligible for You probably, depending on your income, won't be eligible for job seeker payment just yet. So you'd want to exhaust those things first. Um, if you're a person whose hours has been reduced, then what I would recommend is jumping onto the CentreLink website. Onto there's a special COVID page um, and a special COVID page for job seekers. You can actually have a look at what the income test is for. Centrelink there are different income tests for job seekers depending on whether they're a single person whether they're a member of a couple and also whether they have children in their care so there's not a there's not a one-size-fits-all income test but all of the different income test limits are listed on the Centrelink website. And so you can have a look and see if the income you're likely to earn with those reduced hours is going to put you over the income test limit or not. And if you're under the income test limit, then it's important to apply and you might be eligible for either a full payment or a partial payment. Okay. So all of these things
0: are being put in place, but Right now, if you had have lost your job this week, last week, and you are at the point where you have no money, these payments are not coming through immediately. What do you do now?
1: I guess in the, so in the centrelink context, um, I would be saying try to assist your client where possible to get onto my gov and try to log a claim for probably job seeker payment, or in some cases it might be something like special benefit that your client might be Entitled to. And if your client has never received any Centrelink payments before, then they will have to go through a process of getting a Centrelink reference number. Um, but if they have received a payment in the past at some time, that process should be quite straightforward and it might be something you could kind of help them to do to make that intent to claim online using MyGov. If your client is someone who is not likely to be eligible for Centrelink payments because of, for example, their residency status, then that is a more tricky question and one that I'm hoping we might see other answers to in the coming weeks but at the moment we know there are going to be some fairly vulnerable categories of people that that there are no measures in place for and that are going to be reliant on other forms of financial support I suppose in the in the you know in the form of things like charitable support it's a really difficult situation for a lot of people find
0: as well on the Centrelink website there's a link to a page called payment and service finder which essentially if you have clients um, at the moment who are desperate for some form of support whether it be housing or food or money they can go onto this website the payment and service finder from the Centrelink website and they can put in their details or you can do that with them and um, a whole bunch of resources and organizations will come up linking them to those services that they're looking for support for uh, right now while they're waiting for these Centrelink changes to come into play. Okay. So I think we're coming to a close here, but for community workers again, and for anyone else listening that wants some help with this, obviously contacting Centrelink as a first port of call for these payment problems, but Legal Aid, what what help and advice are we giving? And maybe just mentioning appeals as well?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so we are available and happy to give advice to people who are Centrelink recipients or who are applying for Centrelink and, and who got some questions about how these measures apply for most clients it would be best if if they come to us after they've made an application and a decision has been made if it's a negative decision and they're keen to know if it's the right decision or if they should challenge the decision the exception to that is for people who are visa holders who think that they might um, be assisted by the waiver of the newly arrived residence waiting period but aren't quite sure if that's going to apply to them or not, uh, we would strongly encourage those people to contact us and we're happy to kind of look at their particular visa situation and try to give some advice ahead of time about what they might be eligible for. So people can come to Legal Aid for that advice. There are also other options for getting advice. So the Welfare Rights Centre is a community legal centre that also provides advice about social security issues so clients could contact their seeking advice. Um, for caseworkers, another really handy resource is Economic Justice Australia, which used to be the National Social Security Rights Network, produces incredible fact sheets um, and they've got a fact sheet specifically on these COVID measures and Centrelink. So we'll also link to that in the materials for the podcast but keeping an eye on their website is is another good idea if you just want some sort of plain language information about what the changes are and what they might mean for your clients. So the other key message that we want to get out to clients and, and to caseworkers supporting clients at this time is if they do apply for Centrelink payments and they're knocked back, uh, the most important thing is that they do have appeal rights um, and it's free to exercise those appeal rights. So they can actually ask Centrelink to conduct an internal review of that decision by an authorised review officer, which is a different officer within Centrelink to the one who made the original decision. Ideally, we recommend that clients make that request within 13 weeks of receiving the original decision because that means that if the de- the appeal is in their favor, then they'll be entitled to back pay as well. Clients can ask for that in a variety of different ways. So they can They can just call Centrelink and ask over the telephone. Um, They can ask in person, but I think clients might be less inclined to do that at this time. Uh, Or they can even send something through in writing that literally just has to say, I'm not happy with this decision. I would like Centrelink to look at it for me or I would like an authorised review officer to look at this decision. Yeah. Beyond that point it is also p- possible for people to appeal decisions further to the administrative appeals tribunal but that's a that's a time where we would maybe recommend that they come in and get some advice from us before doing so.
0: Okay, great. And how is legal aid providing advice at the moment?
1: Yes, yeah, so at the moment um, we have had to make some changes to the way that we provide our services, but we are very much still providing advice to clients. Most of our services have been moved to telephone, um, and if that presents any difficulties for people, then we can always get some material to them either by email or in writing. We're just not doing any face to face appointments at the moment.
0: Okay, very fair. All right, thank you, Nicola. We'll speak to you again soon.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: If you enjoyed the episode and found it useful, please share it with your organisation, colleagues and communities. We understand that this is a difficult and constantly changing time, but we will do our best to continue to provide education and training via our podcasts, webinars and newsletters. Please get in touch with us if you have a topic you would like more information about and we will do our best to provide that. Until next time, thanks from all of us here at the CLE branch at Legal Aid New South Wales.